before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame. Joining me, uh, as always, for this series is the great and good Bill Fleckerstein. Hi, mate. Hello, Grant. How are you today? I'm very, very well. Give uh, give everybody a leg update. How are we, how we going with the rehab? Well, let's see. It's about week four and a half post-surgery. I can put full weight on my boot. And in three weeks, I get my boot off, and I can then spend six months trying to re-strengthen the calf that atrophied while I had the surgery. So um, I'm moving forward. I can start to do stuff. I can hit tennis balls with the boot on. But uh, <laughs> okay. it's going to be quite a while before my calf is back to 100%. But All thank right. you for asking. You take it easy. Don't you end up hitting too many tennis balls and screwing yourself up. You're, you're, no, you're no spring chicken. I hate to be the one to break it to you. Who I am certainly a spring chicken. Just because oh, you're yeah. not, don't right, don't, well, don't. I'm sorry, not going to be. Guilt by, I'm not going to have guilt by association just because yeah, you're feeling enough. old. Fair enough. Yeah, I can't argue with that. I'm no spring chicken. That's for sure. Well, look, um, we have another guest joining us today who I've been really excited to speak to. Um, I've interviewed him a couple of times before. I've I've watched him speak numerous times, and every single one of those has been hugely thought provoking and an incredibly enjoyable uh, experience. And that is Peter Zion. Peter's a geopolitical strategist and the author of three fabulous books, uh, The Accidental Superpower, The Absent Superpower, and his most recent one, Disunited Nations, which uh, uh, I interviewed him about last year, about about this time last year. Uh, they're all really, really interesting books, enjoyable reads, um, and uh, I'm going to be – I guarantee I'll be plugging them all the way through this interview, Bill, because I've enjoyed reading every single one of them. But um, hopefully we're going to get a chance to talk to Peter about – uh, geopolitics and and the role that that plays in whatever the end game may be, because there is for sure going to be a geopolitical component to it. Absolutely, and since that's one of my weaknesses or blind spots, an in depth an in depth understanding of all that, I'm really anxious to hear what he has to say. Well, let's uh, let's ease that anxiety of yours and bring him on. What do you say? Okay, it's a deal. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Um, it's great to see you. It's been it's been way too long. Um, there's so much I want to talk with you about today. Uh, the world is is fracturing before our eyes. But but where I want to start is the post Bretton Woods era of globalization, which seems to be fraying at the edges, or possibly even reversing, given America's withdrawal, or perhaps more accurately, let's call it its turn inwards. Can you talk a little about the quid pro quos that led to the globalization phenomenon and what the latest moves mean for both the, the China-US relationship and the, the kind of broader global order? So we came up with free trade and globalization. Uh, the idea that the American Navy would patrol the oceans for everyone so that anyone could go anywhere at any time and interact with any partner in any supply chain uh, and export goods for hard currency. We, we bribed up an alliance. We paid people to be on our side. And it worked. And then the war ended in 1989, and we never updated our strategy. So globalization has kind of been on autopilot for these past 30 years. And 
the Americans have lost interest. The strategic environment that gave birth to it is gone. And we've now elected three populist leaders in, in a row that have absolutely no interest in anything international unless it's bringing jobs back. Uh, Biden is saying a lot of the right things for globalists, but he says he wants to do everything with no money and no troops, which is, you know, not how maintaining the global system works. Uh, so that's kind of piece one. The Americans are done. We've already withdrawn our troops. We don't have the capacity to patrol the oceans anymore. Piece two comes from piece one, because when you inject global peace into the system and allow everyone to trade, incomes rise. And when incomes rise, people move off the farm and into cities. And when they do that, they stop having kids. And you do that for 70 years, and you have birth rate collapses in not just the rich world, but in the developing world as well. The first half of this decade was always going to be the decade that the developing world writ large aged into mass retirement. And it was, the second half of this decade was always going to be the decade when the developing world ages out of having sufficient young people to work and consume. So this was always the last decade uh, of this system, regardless of what the United States did. And then coronavirus came along and just said, you know what, it's actually going to be this year. So we're past peak consumption. We are past peak investment. We are past peak production. Most of the world will never go back to where we were in January of last year. Yeah. The question is, how do we manage this transition from what we've all known our entire professional lives to this terrifying new amorphous deglobalized world where no one's holding up the ceiling? And that's where I make my living. Right, right, exactly. You know, it's interesting, this, this, this idea of, COVID as an accelerant is, is um, I think, an important one because it came along kind of out of nowhere and everyone has been blaming it for just about everything rather than acknowledging the fact that these demographic issues have been on the wall for you know, decades now and you could see this coming and COVID has accelerated that. Yeah, and it really depends upon which country you look at. So, for example, if you're looking at um, kind of tier one countries, uh, Korea, Japan, Germany, Italy, you know, they passed the no point of no return in their demographics in the late 80s. Hmm. And so we've just been waiting for the end and now the end is here. And the second tier countries, uh, Canada has kind of pushed things off with mass immigration, um, Spain with mass immigration, uh, the Brits with mass immigration. You can kind of see a common theme here. Uh, they've got at least another 10 or 15 years, but they're on the same trajectory. And then the tier three countries, the United States, Mexico, uh, we've managed to keep our birth rates up. So we get this split in the world where the populations that are more sustainable, where reproduction is still possible, uh, kind of lurch into this new world with a lot of the tools of the old. Uh, for them, reinventing the wheel is not necessary to be done right now. And the tier three countries can look at the tier one countries and watch how they grapple with the changes and hopefully learn a few things. Yeah, it, it's uh, that, that, that idea of, of watching and trying to learn things. Obviously, along with all everything that you've talked about, there has been this tremendous stability. You know, there, there have been wars in the Middle East almost continuously, but there's just been this kind of stability to the world that's only really being shown for what it was now as we start to get instability rising everywhere. So just talk a little bit about that stability, how it started to fray, and, and where perhaps the most dangerous frayings are occurring? Well, if you look at a map of the world, um, the East Asian rim from the Japanese 
I'm from the Sea of Japan going down roughly to the southern Philippines, you know, so you're picking up the knife, the Northeast Asian four, Japan, Korea, uh, Taiwan, China, uh, the Persian Gulf, of course, and then a belt in Central Europe uh, from Scandinavia and, and Moscow straight down to uh, Turkey. Those three zones, uh, historically speaking, have been the most violent areas of the world uh, since the beginning of recorded history. Uh, just a quirk of geography, this is where the world's major cultural and economic regions kind of come together and clash. What the global order under American leadership did is stop that. We, we forced everyone to be on the same side. And so for 70 years, we have not had the clash of civilizations. Instead, we've had global growth and integration, which, you know, if you wanted to integrate before 1945, it meant some European or Japanese uh, dude came over and conquered your country and forcibly assimilated you into whatever they wanted. That's what integration used to look like. That's not what it is today. I mean, we've got container ships that have, what, 15,000 containers on them now with products from every country in the world and going to every country in the world. We, we've never been this linked, but that requires stability. And the first time a civilian ship, for whatever reason, is, you know, challenged by a state navy, that's it. It's over. I mean, you, you raise the marginal cost of transport by like 1%, half of the world's supply chains are no longer viable. So we really are talking a breakdown of everything we know about how we build stuff, how we develop things, how we move things from A to B. It's all interconnected, and it's all incredibly fragile. And without the Americans, none of it is possible. Peter, may I ask what you would assign the probability of, you know, some state actor, you know, taking on one of these cargo ships? I mean, is that something that could happen at any moment or would there be a decent lead up to it? Or I never even thought about that other than around the, well, what's the name of the place? Djibouti, you know, where all that stuff goes on. That's the only place, that's the only place I've ever seen any of that actions. I had kind of put it out of my mind until you just mentioned it. So it's kind of like, let's assume you're in a car wreck that involves a train and a cliff. You know, what, which one actually kills you? Uh, <laughs> there are any number of ways that this can all go to hell overnight. Uh, if I were a betting man, I would say the, yeah. the type of ship that is most likely to hit would probably be an oil tanker. Because uh, that's where the most immediate vulnerability is. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't have to be. You interrupt the flow of energy anywhere for any reason, a really bad hurricane, uh, the Russians move on Eastern Ukraine, the Chinese and the Japanese escalate from just yelling at each other to actually you know, pointing some guns at each other and somebody pulls the trigger accidentally. Anything that does any of this, energy prices will at least double in a very short period of time. And when that happens, you got these giant tankers carrying a million plus barrels of crude sailing along at a, a measly 11 uh. knots. Um, countries will act in their own self-interest. And oil is the product that is transport, transported the furthest on average of anything else. And of course, once one of those goes down, the energy markets go down. And you can imagine what that's going to do to everything else. You know, uh. Oil is not just a fuel. It's a fertilizer. It's what we used to make plastics and pretty much everything that you can probably touch in your room right now. Uh, without it, everything stops. And that's just... That's just one bullet. That's just the cliff. <laughs> you've got the train and you've got the other cars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Peter, I, I want to come back to oil in a little bit because uh, when, when we get around to discussing China in more detail and particularly the chapter on China in, in your book, Disunited Nations, which I will plug for you because if anybody listening hasn't read that, it's, it's just a fantastic piece of work. 
But let's let's start with obviously the big one that's on everybody's mind, and that's the US and China. The the escalation so far, how you look at it going forward, and if we can understand the role that Taiwan might play in this, because I think that at the moment is looking more and more like the kind of key piece on the board. Sure. Uh I mean, the, race, the relationship is in free fall right now. And I don't mean to blame Biden or even Xi for that. That This is something that's been coming for a while. Uh, Obama and Trump did the relationship no favors either. Now, that's not me saying that, you know, if we, only we had better leadership in the United States, things would be different, although that would be nice. Uh, what, what I mean by that is this is structural. The Chinese system is utterly dependent upon the global order in its current form as patrolled and maintained by the Americans. And so if the Americans really want to destroy China, all they really need to do is go home. Uh, geography will take care of the rest. But uh, a few basic things. Number one, demographics. Uh, the Chinese have had record declines in their birth rate four years in a row now. And even with the Chinese tendency to muck up the statistics in order to make themselves look better, they're now publicly saying that the Chinese population probably peaked last year. So we know that by 2070, there will be fewer than half as many Chinese as there are today. China's not the country of the future. China is reverting to its historical mean of being a geographic description and not a country. It's going to break up. The question is whether it breaks up in the next few years or not, and I, you know, even odds. Um, on the American side, we now have sanctions on their equivalent of Chevron Texaco, a CNOOC, because of dealings with Iran. We have an energy crisis brewing in the Persian Gulf involving the Iranians, of course. Uh, the country that would get hurt most by that is China. They're the world's largest importer by a factor of four. Uh, the Chinese, because of their demographic situation, have seen their labor costs go up by a factor of 12 in the last 20 years. So they're no longer the low-cost producer, and they haven't advanced enough to be the high-cost producer. Their educational system has stalled. The quality of Chinese products has probably peaked about 2007. Uh, and we're seeing countries like Vietnam and Mexico cannibalize their market share. And that's before you figure out things like the trade war. Uh, the U.S. new trade representative, Catherine Tai, her entire professional experience is based around suing the People's Republic of China over American trade law. And her family's from Taiwan. You can imagine how the Chinese see that. They're perceiving this as a full court press against their interests, and they're not wrong. Now, a lot of people say that, oh, well, you know, the Chinese can just take over for the U.S. and become the leader of globalization. Like, mm, yeah, no. To make globalization work, we had to pay everyone to be on our side. Part of that meant running a ginormous trade deficit so that people had an economic interest in cooperation. That's not the Chinese model. They want to force, force feed products through everybody, down everyone's throats. And they, even if everybody signed on, it's not like the Chinese can control the world. Uh, they have one aircraft carrier, the Shandong, um, that's about as powerful as, well, maybe a 70% as powerful as a, an American uh, jump carrier, our marine expeditionary units. We have 10 of those. And then we have 12 supercarriers on top of that. So the Chinese Navy versus the American Navy, it's like a 50 to one ratio in terms of the American force advantage. Uh, they can't get past the first island chain. Their manufacturing system is dependent upon hyper-finance financing. Uh, there, there's nothing about this that is sustainable in a world without the United States. And I'd argue there's really nothing about it that's sustainable in a world with the United States much longer. And so the Chinese at the top realize that the game is almost up and they're opting for a political lockdown and nationalization, uh, or not nationalization, nationalism 
ultranationalism, actually, and a neo-fascist corporate structure uh, just to hold the country together. Because if they lose access to global markets, you know, the lights literally go out. You have mass employment of hundreds of millions of people. And anytime any country has faced anything on that scale, you've had civic breakdown. And the Chinese know this because they've been through this like 47 times. Uh, the whole one child, the whole uh, one China mantra is about finding a political solution to this. And Nixon, by bringing the Chinese into the global order, provided an economic outlet to make it happen. But those days are gone. And it's just now a question of when does this system actually break apart? And does it take anyone with it? Yeah, 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 it's, it's really interesting, Peter, because um, when I read uh, the chapter on China and disunited nations, it was it was fascinating. And I, and I really want to dig into that shortly. And then when you and I spoke, actually about this time last year, I think it was, give or take, it was funny. The reaction to it was very much, oh, here's another American that, that you know, thinks China hasn't got a chance and he's just, he's just ra- you're waving the flag. And I found that a very interesting response because listening to you and reading you, there's absolutely I, I just don't come away with that feeling. It's it's you know, this is analysis. This is not there's no tub thumping here. But I was dying to get this chance to to let you address that, right? Because because it, it's I'm sure that you must get that a lot. Oh, you're just too American centric and you just you know, you're just bagging the Chinese because you're American. It happens. Um honestly, my Asian clients are probably the biggest um the, the biggest buyer of what I'm selling. Because uh, they, 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 they see it up close and they realize that the Chinese system is based on uh, mass exports and overproduction and no consumption whatsoever. And they, 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 they know that this party has to end. And they're, they're terrified because, you know, they've made a lot of money at that party. And with the Chinese being available for economic access and the Americans being available for security protection, that has been the best of both worlds for Korea and Taiwan and Japan, Singapore and Malaysia and the Philippines and the rest. Uh, But all things end. Right. So let's get back to that Taiwan component, because when you mentioned there about them not being able to get past the first island chain, you know, when you look at the world from China, you see that the the port in Taipei is a very clear route out into the deep blue, you know, and, and, it, and it, it does allow them to bypass that first island chain, which just, I guess, is another reason why Taiwan is so appealing to the Chinese. So, so talk a little bit about the China-Taiwan situation historically, for those people that don't really understand it, and also then how the recent chip shortage, the recent distractions in America, there seems to be a lot more chatter about Taiwan being in play, let's call it. Yeah, there certainly is. Uh, Taiwan has always kind of played um, an, a role in the fringes in Chinese history. So the idea of China as a single unified country is, is actually historically very anomalous. You know, this is a, the Han have what, 3,500 years of recorded history. Uh, they've only been a unified country for about one-tenth of that. And half of what they've been united under has been under the American-led strategic order, which prevented anybody from preying upon them. Uh, and most of the rest is under Mongol occupation. So it's like, you know, there, there's not a long history here of the Han calling the shots. Uh, Taiwan's role in that is they were always the outland. So if a dynasty was defeated on the mainland, they could always flee to Taiwan and try again. And so when the Chinese are nervous about Taiwan, they're, they're paying attention to their history. They've realized that Taiwan at many times in its history has knocked the legs out from whoever's, from whoever's trying to unify unify the mainland. 
Uh, so they're not going to give up, at least rhetorically, on the one China policy. Uh, however, that doesn't mean that they can get it and they're, or they're not willing to pay the price to get it. So while the Chinese Navy versus the U.S. Navy would be, you know, a hilarious joke, uh, the Chinese Navy versus Taiwan, you know, that's actually what the Chinese Navy was designed for, amphibious assault on a relatively close proximity. In a straight-up fight, I have no doubt that the Chinese could conquer Taiwan. It won't be a straight-up fight. Uh, assuming for the moment the United States doesn't get involved, assuming for the moment the Japanese don't get involved, and if we did get involved... <laughs> God, we just put our carriers on like the east side of Taiwan, sink anything, fly over, sink anything that's coming over. And it would be pretty straightforward. And we'd send like three or four destroyers to the Indian Ocean, just shut off the oil imports. China would collapse in three months, no doubt. But if we're not involved, if it is a more of a straight up fight, uh, the Chinese are going to have to gather forces in order to surge over Taiwan. And the Taiwanese are not blind. It's like, you know, this is like the one conflict they've been training right. for since 1949. So what are they gonna do? Well, Taiwan is a nuclear power in all but name. So if they get two weeks of notice, they're gonna have a half a dozen deliverable warheads. Seriously? Yeah, it's, I mean, this is 1940s technology. And I don't know if you guys have met any Taiwanese, but they're pretty freaking clever. No, no, <laughs> it's no, like, you know, they can manage this. If it's a choice between independence or subjugation, you know, getting... No, no, I, I get that. I, I guess it shows you how clueless I am about what's really happening in Asia when I wasn't really aware that, that, that Taiwan could stand up that sort of nuclear stuff, uh, sorry, capacity if they were required to. It's, well, there's it's, a lot it's, of countries it's, that it's could pull it off. Pretty open secret in your Yeah, world. it's like, you know, there's a lot of other countries who could do it too. Um, Sweden could do it in a heartbeat. Um, yeah. Korea is probably the best example. Korea every once in a while is shocked, shocked when one of their interns accidentally purifies some weapons-grade uranium. <laughs> and the IAEA comes in and slaps them on the wrist and the Koreans are like, no, that was bad. Never do that again. You want a job? <laughs> they just, you know, make sure that they can dust off that skill set if they ever really need it. Uh, anyway, uh, if so if the Chinese are going to do this and they don't want to get nuked, they can't gather forces. They just have to go with whatever they have, wherever it is, which means you're talking 100,000 casualties on the Chinese side. Yeah. Uh, it would be really, really ugly. And then what? Yeah. Yes, technically, you now have a way through the first island chain. But do you really think the American market is going to remain open after you take out Taiwan? And now you've gotten out of the first island chain, but at the wrong spot. You now have to go all the way around, what, Australia? <laughs> it's like, you know, the geography of East Asia is not conducive to a Chinese breakout. They would need to secure the entire first island chain from Japan all the way to Singapore. That's the only way this works. And that is just beyond them by a couple orders of magnitude. In addition... What do you think the rest of the world powers are going to do about shipments in and out of China in this scenario? So, I mean, you're, you're talking about the Chinese choosing to sacrifice their economic involvement, their near-developed world status, their energy access, their resource access, their market access. Everything that makes the CCP survive today goes away if they make a Hail Mary attack on Taiwan. So if you're okay reverting to a near pre-industrial status of feudalism, it's a great plan. But I don't think that's what they're after. Peter, let me ask you, because this is what I find fascinating. This is why I, I so enjoy reading Disunited Nations, because 
when you talk about this, it makes all the sense in the world. And yet the prevailing narrative that you read everywhere in the media is never this, right? The prevailing narrative is always Taiwan is vulnerable. The Americans are disinterested. China is going to use this. Why is it that this narrative, you know, the facts of the situation just get completely ignored? I mean, there is an obvious answer. Yes, I think we can all figure out what that is. But away from that, why is it, do you think, that, this, that, that so few people take the time to, to look into this stuff? Well, I would argue that technologically, our, um, the media has evolved in a not particularly useful direction. Uh, back in the 80s when we got the fax machine and then letter email and then attachments and now social media and algorithms, at each step of the process, we've removed uh, the human touch from information collection and analysis. And so it's not even it's not even collected really anymore, much less packaged together with context. Uh, I, I Obviously, the American uh, news agencies have suffered immensely under this process, but I'd say that the CBC and the BBC have probably, in terms of absolute quality drops, suffered the most. Yeah. And Al Jazeera is now the only global news agency, in my opinion, that even tries. Maybe France 24, if it's something that the French care about. But that's it. Um, and so we're not... We're not being prevent. We're not being presented with information we can use, and that means it all just comes down to tweet opinions. And yeah. you know, you can only you only get to these issues so much with 244 characters, uh, and text chains are just so annoying. Um, and it's like this for everything. And so we we develop a conventional wisdom, and that's all anybody talks about. And anything that challenges it is generally shuffled to the side until such time as it breaks. And then we develop a new conventional wisdom. And it's just a question of, in that moment of uh, reality enlightening us, whether or not we can kind of grab onto the details enough to change our minds. I would like to ask this, and maybe you're getting there, but um, on the one hand, it seems like, you know, conflict is inevitable, as, as Grant was just sort of alluding to. But then when you break it down like you just did, it seems like it's almost impossible that China is going to be able to take Taiwan. So what's your best guess? Or is it is it too impossible because it depends on too many variables moving and those knock-on effects of each one? Oh, there's definitely going to be conflict. I'm just saying that specific one does not actually serve China's survivability. I got you. Okay. Uh, okay. There's, there's any number, I mean, remember, train, car wreck, cliff. There's any number of ways this can go horribly, horribly wrong. And a lot of them build on one another. Uh-huh. Uh, so in the case of East Asia, if you remove the Americans from the equation, at some point, the countries of Northeast Asia are going to either have a raw materials crisis or an employment crisis or an export crisis or a financial crisis. And whichever one happens first will color the rest. Uh, if I were a betting man, I would guess energy obviously is the first step. It's really straightforward. The Chinese Navy only has about 60, maybe 70 ships that can sail more than a thousand miles from port. And that's assuming they're going at slow speed in a straight line under non-combat conditions. Whereas the Japanese have two fully capable supercarriers that can go anywhere in the world. So if I were to bet, I would guess that you would have a brief naval conflict between Japan and Taiwan that's not actually in East Asia. Between, sorry, Japan and, and China. Yeah, it's yeah. not actually in East Asia in which the, the Chinese lose every hull that is involved and then China is shut off from everything that it needs to survive. And then the question, of course, is what is Beijing doing in that environment? Do they nuke Japan? It's like normally I would say no, but in that in specific scenario, maybe. Japan, of course, is militarily capable of doing everything that the Taiwanese and the Koreans are capable of doing. 
Uh, so, you know, we can have a nice little deterrence effect in, in Northeast Asia, but China is the, the center of manufacturing in the workshop of the world, you know, ends the next day, uh, which means that you have mass employment the day after that, which means you have challenges to the Politburo a week after that. Uh, there, there's no version of this where China comes out looking good. Well, I, again, that's when, when you lay it out like this, I, I go back to my prior question. On, on one hand, it seems like, you know, some conflict vis-a-vis, you know, China and whichever neighbor you want to talk about is inevitable. But once you lay it out, the end game for them, so to speak, is all bad because even if they win, they lose. So aren't they smart enough to play chess? Uh, I mean, they know how to play Go, right? I mean, can't they? Uh, Well, (laughs) I would argue that the Chinese aren't nearly as good as long-term planning as everybody in the West seems to think that they are. Okay. Uh, Their history certainly does not support that. Uh, But let's assume for the moment that they decided to play nice and, you know, roll over and let the United States continue to release Asia. That doesn't solve most of their problems. Because, I mean, you have, to, you have to convince the Americans to be involved. And one of the things that we're seeing right now, uh, it came gloriously obvious under Trump, was that the days of the U.S. paying you to be on our side are over. And now, if you want us on your side, you have to pay us. And for a country like China with 1.4 billion people and a terminal demography, but with utter dependence upon the strategic environment they can't shape, what could they possibly offer the United States that we actually want? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great question. But let me put you on the spot then. Let, let me install you as the head of the Chinese Communist Party for a moment. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah I love yeah. this idea. We'll, we'll, we'll give you yeah. one of those. Yeah, we'll, we'll give you the whole thing, right? You get the whole thing. You get the flag behind you, the whole thing. Eight guys <laughs> around you. What's the smart play here? What should the Chinese be doing? Is it trying to prolong the status quo? But obviously that creates tensions at home. What do you do? First day on the job. And you can't resign like Jim Grant would when I tried to make him head of the Fed. (laughs) Uh, Honestly, I don't think Xi is that far off. A propaganda war separating what can be heard and read in China from the rest of the world, instituting an information security state. These are all reasonable steps to take if you know that the bottom is going to fall out of the economic system because you have to make sure that people are as shut off from the rest of the world's information flow as possible and are as dependent upon your information choices as possible. Uh, And I'd probably add in a boxer rebellion element, which I think is going to happen before long, and just start executing a few random foreigners, because that will play very well in the information state that they have constructed. Um, I still don't think it's going to work, but I think it's one of the few things that might hold the country together. And and if it doesn't work, what what does that look like for for us outside, a, a failure of China on that kind of level? What does it look like to the rest of the world? Well, Chinese history is replete with ways that that all goes to hell. Um, The most likely specific outcome, the one that's happened in the majority of the cases, is uh, northern China drops into pre-industrial status, uh, probably loses a quarter of a billion people in the process um, because they just can't feed them. Uh, The cities empty out as people go back to the farms uh, in an attempt to stay alive. Uh, And it just kind of drops into a neo-Maoist tyranny, which is not too different from where they are right now. Uh, Shanghai uh, pretends that nothing has gone wrong, right? 
and sends unofficial <laughs> ambassadors to every major capital in the world and says, hey, we're open for business. <laughs> and foreign tech and foreign money continues to use Shanghai uh, as a launching ground um, using their tech and infrastructure and labor force. And it will become a magnet for the desperate from Northern China. And then Hong Kong and Fujian and all the other coastal cities basically become de facto independent, uh, which is how they have been for most of history. And most of the iterations where China has unified, the Southern Chinese cities are not part of them. Uh, it's literally a bridge too far. The geography is really rugged and it's difficult for Northern power to reach into the South, particularly if the North deindustrializes and the South can find foreign sponsors. Right. The job's yours. You've, got, you've, got, you've passed the first interview. That's, that's great. That's great. We're going we're to have you come in for a probationary period now for a couple of months. And, we'll, and if you get through that, <laughs> we'll get you fitted for your suit. Let's shift the focus a little bit uh, and move to the Middle East, because there's, there seems, again, be so much going on there, not just with the, the seemingly endless conflicts, but particularly I, I want to talk about Saudi Arabia and, and what MBS is, is trying to do and how successful he's been thus far the that little is everything transition yeah yeah exactly right exactly right. So, so let's talk a bit about Saudi because it, it, that is a big change I think for, for the region yeah I would argue that the everything transition can't happen I mean the first thing you need if you want an everything transition is a domestic skilled labor force which means you have to train your domestic labor force which means you have to have educational systems to do the training have a labor force to train they have none of those things so I mean you're talking about a couple generations of cultural shifts of the state not supporting the general population before you can even consider getting into heavy manufacturing, much less medium or light or an information city. So in the meantime, all you're gonna get is these uh, white elephant development projects that look like they belong on the moon. Um, it's fun and it's flashy, but there's a reason why no one on the outside world is putting a cent into it. It's all just Saudi royal money. So I don't think that's gonna happen. Uh, whether or not MBS believes that or believes his own uh, rhetoric is a whole nother question. Uh, the, the royal family at that level has become actually more difficult to read than the Chinese Politburo. <laughs> uh, they're not talking with ever, anybody about the details. But if you look at the guy's record, you know, he has no problem sending thugs into another country to kill people, cut them into pieces, and then roast them in a barbecue pit while there's a party going on using the same barbecue. This guy is not wired normally. And he's going to be the king for the next 50 years. So we, we need to stop thinking of MBS as a traditional modern statesman. He's, he's a medieval king. And you can expect certain things from that. Whether that's good or bad for Saudi Arabia, of course, depends on what happens with the Iranians. But you know, that's a, maybe a conversation for another time. Well, I, let's have that conversation now because no, because I was going to say, why do we no, have to wait? No, because, no, because you're right. That that's that's the whole ball of wax there, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the question is, how does Iran re-enter this region as a player with capacity? So, the United States is getting out, and there are two ways that the U.S. can do that. Option number one is we can anoint a successor and give them everything short of nukes, so that they can impose their will in the region. It can't be Israel. They don't have the population. We thought maybe it could be Turkey, but they've evolved in a direction the last few years that we really don't like. The Saudi Arabians would have to, you know, leave air conditioning, so they're really not a viable option. 
And then there's Iran, which we're like, we're usually on the other side of things from Iran, so we're not going to sponsor you. So, you know, that, that whole strategy is kind of tossed. Um, and honestly, that was kind of the Trump plan or the Clinton plan. Uh, and it just wasn't viable. Um, option two is establish a regional power so these countries contain each other. And that's kind of plays more to America's strengths. Uh, maintain our position as the arbiter, but don't do the day-to-day. And ever since we went into the Middle East, we've kind of forgotten that. Well, we're out again. And so it's an option. Now, the current U.S. Secretary of State and the current U.S. National Security Advisor, uh, Blinken and Sullivan, uh, these guys came up with the idea for the Iran nuclear deal back during the Obama administration. But remember, they were not in those positions then. They were assistants. They were on Team Biden, not Team Obama. So they came up with the idea. They presented it to their boss. They went to Obama together. Obama took the idea, gave it to his team, who were, to be perfectly blunt, kind of incompetent. Uh, And the deal that we got with Iran was badly negotiated and implemented in even a worse manner. Well, Blinken and Sullivan are now in charge. They know the mistakes that were done, and they've looked at what Trump has done since with the maximum pressure campaign. You're like, you know, that's not how we would have done it, but we'd be fools to ignore the environment that this has created. Uh, It's crushed the Iranian economy and destroyed the Iranians' ability to fund all those paramilitaries all over the region. So we're seeing the greatest retreat in Iranian power uh, since the Ayatollahs came to power in 1980 right now. Uh, And this is the position that Sullivan and Blinken want to start negotiations with, with the understanding that Iran is backed into a corner and has no money. And so, yes, they do want a new nuclear deal, but the key word there is new. So if Iran is going to be brought into the system with capacity, they have to play by America's rules. And if they choose not to, they have to do it without oil income. That's a tough call if you're in Tehran. And which way this goes really matters to Saudi Arabia (laughs) because an Iran that doesn't have money is a a, a whole different ball of wax. And so if you're Saudi, all of a sudden you're like, huh, this might be a really, really good time to switch sides on a lot of competitions in order to isolate Iran. So like things in Syria right now, the the, the Saudis used to fund ISIS because they were fighting the Syrian government and the Syrian government was an Iranian proxy. Why not just give Assad a billion dollars and buy Syria outright right now? Uh, We're going to see a lot of decisions like that being made in Iran to capitalize on the fact that Iran is indecisive at this moment. Indecisive for good reason. But if they can change anything on the ground, now's the time. Could I ask a qualitative uh, uh, question? What you just said about um, Blinken and Sullivan versus their compatriots in the Obama administration who might have been slightly less than competent based on what's happened and what you intimated. Would you say that Blinken and Sullivan have a pretty good understanding of things and are pretty competent? I'd argue that the national security team, and by that I mean all aspects of national security, defense, intelligence, treasury, that we've got the most competent people, the most internationally aware people uh, of at least the last 30 years. Really? Okay. That's yeah, at least since George Herbert Walker Bush. Um, and, you know, honestly, probably on par with his team. It's one of the best we've had in the last century. Uh, now, whether or not uh, they can exercise that power, we're going to find out very soon. I, I think we all know that Biden is not 
at the top of his game right now. And I think we all know that Biden is unlikely to be a two-term president and it has nothing to do with elections. Right. Um, so far, everyone is playing nice. So far, we haven't had any of the interpersonal strife that you normally see on like week three of a new administration. I, I think that's a great sign. I think these people are, I think their hearts are in the right place. I think their heads are screwed on straight. But we have, we're in a transitional moment of history, and it appears to me that they're still playing by the old playbook of globalization. But globalization is over. And so I, I think that the mindset needs to change, and the only person who can change that mindset is the president. And I don't think the president is significantly invested in anything international to lead in that regard. And that's more or less the same position we've now been, this is the fifth president think who thinks that way. Yeah, fifth. Um, had these folks been in charge during the Clinton administration? And from my point of view, the foreign policy would have basically been Bush, Herbert Walker, uh, I'm sorry, Herbert Walker Bush part two, if it had been this crowd. And that I think would have been great because I could have steered globalization in a very different direction. But economically, we're divested. Militarily, we are divested. And diplomacy can only take you so far if you're not backing it up with those two other two pillars. So I think they're going to do the best they can. I think we will get a deal with Iran, not this year, but next. But aside from that, you know, we're, they're presiding over the disintegration of the system, not its regeneration. This is interesting. It plays into this whole idea of the end game so neatly. You know that that, that word globalization keeps coming up, and and if there is, I guess, an obvious end game, a real end game, then it is the as you say the the globalization reaching its outer limits and then starting to go back the other way. So, just talk a little bit about how the reversal of globalization that the main parts of this order that will be affected by a retreating and a, and a, and a, and a deglobalization, if you like. I think it's all of it. Um, but honestly, if you break the, the two big pillars, um, transport and finance. So, you know, you do anything that inhibits the ability of civilians to do maritime transport without a military escort, and 95% of the stuff that is traded on the ocean blue no longer is traded on the ocean blue. I mean, that, that, that's catastrophic for most sectors in most regions. There are exceptions. They're almost all in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, finance. People in their 50s save more than people in their 30s. And what we've had for the last 35 years is an increasing ratio of people in their 50s to people in their 30s as the demographic ages. And that peaked out in the last decade. And now all those people who are in their 50s are now aging into mass retirement. So we've gone through this steady increase in the capital supply on a global scale, historically unprecedented, which has pushed down the cost of capital, increased the velocity of capital, and made all things possible. This is why we're seeing infrastructure in Africa. This is why we're seeing Bitcoin. This is why we're seeing GameStop, because money is functionally free. That ends next year. Because next year, the majority of the world's baby boomers will have moved into mass retirement and they can no longer play the stock markets on the bond markets like they have been because they can never add to the stack again. What they have is what they have. So they move into cash and T-bills. And the velocity of money goes into screaming reverse. And we enter a world of declining consumption instead of increasing consumption. And we don't even have an economic theory that plays with that. Certainly not fascism or socialism or capitalism. So we're 
talking about the end of everything that we think we understand about finance in the next couple of years. Now, in the United States, we've got the healthiest and the youngest and the slowest aging demography of the rich world. And in Mexico, we've got the healthiest and youngest and slowest aging demography of the developing world. And they're bolted together at the hip. And so far, they're getting along pretty well. So in North America, we get to watch everyone else wrestle with this. They're not going to get it right on the first try. And the last eight major wars that humanity fought were ultimately over economics. So to think that this is just going to be a peaceful transition as we kind of noodle over this or that idea, I don't think so. Uh, that, and so with those two pillars gone, none of the rest of this is even possible, not even theoretically. So does that mean that once again, Europe becomes the, the region most likely to be the place where this plays out if it indeed goes this way? <sighs> That's a harsh question. Um, hey, I'm a European. I can ask it. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> um, the short answer is I really don't know because until we know, until somebody comes up with an economic theory that can manage this, um, it's really hard to see where it's going to go. Uh, I would say that the economic theory that is closest that might theoretically fit is UBI. Um, but you want to talk about something that just completely castrates your ability to function internationally. Uh, I think that there will be conflicts in Europe again, Germany, Russia, for sure. Uh, I think the French um, are going to establish kind of a, a new empire in far Western Europe that'll, I don't want to think duke it out with the Brits, but certainly be in competition. And I think the Brits are going to de facto join NAFTA. So this doesn't have to get horribly ugly in Europe, but the idea of a Europe of 50 countries existing peacefully under the American security umbrella, you know, that, that's, that's already gone. And the EU has shown on multiple occasions that it can't force its own members to do things that are in their best interests. Uh, the question, of course, is how does this break? Because everyone in Europe who is, you know, not an idiot uh, realizes what happens if they go down that road. Uh, the Europeans have a much better sense of their history than Americans do. When I look across that region, and obviously there are strains in Europe between countries which which are as old as the hills, and, and they've kind of been put aside for now. There are, as you say, those demographic pressures in, in every you know, Germany is a great case in point about this demographic problem um, with, with the with the aging demographic, and in the middle of it all, you've got Putin's Russia, who don't mind sticking a knife in a rib here and poking someone there and just kind of stirring the pot. Uh, or, or, a little poison, or a little poison here and there. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So so you know, does, does that ultimately make Russia some kind of power broker of sorts, even if it's just in that they can kind of steer some of the actors into conflicts that might weaken them? I mean, I can tell you how Russia is going to end. It's it's a demographic collapse from within with the uh, ethnic Russians and the assorted allied ethnic Christians aging into obsolescence while a lot of the Turkic minorities uh, are growing robustly. I mean, this hopefully won't lead to a civil war with nuclear weapons, but it's certainly going to lead to a Russian collapse and breakup. Of course, the question is what happens between here and there? Um, Russia has plenty of tools, uh, intelligence, military, energy, uh, to manipulate its near and moderate abroad, and it's something that the Russians have a lot of practice in doing. 
So I expect the Russians to continue to muck in internal American and European politics as long as they possibly can. Now, in my opinion, mucking with the Americans is a bad idea. And that's not because I think at some point we're going to push back hard. But when the Americans go home and the Russians are left dealing with all of their neighbors as their neighbors, they go from dealing with one specific power who doesn't want an escalated fight to 15 different powers with centuries of historical animosity, each one of which is very capable of doing the same thing right back to the Russians. So I think they've... Uh, in counting the Americans as enemy number one for all time, I think they're making a horrific strategic mistake. But the Russians have misread the Americans, honestly, since the beginning. So this doesn't overly, overly surprise me. Um, and we all know what happens when the Germans get moving. Uh, so my concern is that the Russians are accelerating their end with their attempts to preserve their power. Right. Uh, and... Uh, <clears throat> Don't ask me to be a czar for the day. <laughs> Darn, that was going to be my next question. <laughs> ugly, ugly situation there is. Listen, we've got you a big fur hat and everything. It's all measured up for you. This is this is a nightmare. <laughs> One of the ways that Putin has um, maintained his his power and his flexibility is he's consistently purged anyone with independent thought within his inner circle. So there's really nobody uh, close to him that is potent has the potential to be a meaningful successor. So he is the last president of the Russian Federation, and when he is gone, we'll have some infighting at the top, probably a lot of knives and backs and poison and tea, uh, and then the inner circle will be reduced to despotism that isn't sufficiently competent to run the country, and then it'll end. Yeah. Well, the last person now, please turn off the lights. Let me shift again, because something else I really wanted to ask you about, the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict over Nagorno-Karabakh. I, I wrote a piece about this beginning of the year because I just found the whole thing absolutely fascinating and just the way that conflict went down. And also the the, the change it seemed to signify in how wars will be fought so uh, without me laying the whole thing out perhaps you could give people a quick background of that and then for, from a geopolitical standpoint and then your thoughts on on whether that war was as meaningful as, as it seemed to be to me uh, and how if anything it does change the potential uh, handicapping of, of kind of regional conflicts sure so the, the Azerbaijan Amarina conflict was, was one of my graduate projects. So I'm like, you know, right there with that. Here we go. <laughs> uh, so uh, here, the bottom line is that the Armenians, uh, in addition to having Russian sponsorship, uh, are fighting for their lives. And uh, that instills a certain degree of competence in their military forces that doesn't necessarily exist in a lot of the other former Soviet republics. Uh, Azerbaijan population is over twice as big. They spend more on their defense than Armenia has as a GDP and have been doing that for like 12 years now. Uh, but the Azerbaijani military is less competent, I would say, than the Saudi military. And the Saudi military doesn't even exercise. <laughs> uh, the terrain in between them, Nagorno-Karabakh, is a uh, Azerbaijani province that is was lost to the Armenians under the earlier war back in the late 80s, before the Soviet Union still existed, which I find hilarious. Uh, there is nothing physically, that separates Azerbaijan from Nagorno. It's a steady upward climb. There's nothing to hide behind. And then there's a drop-off in the geography before you get to Armenia. So Armenia had to fight over a cliff, and they still won because the Azerbaijanis are just that incompetent. So the 
Azerbaijani government, the Aliyevs, uh, realized about 10 years ago that any war with Armenia that depends upon the Azerbaijani army is one they were going to lose. So they developed the new armed forces. They just bought a shit ton of drones, and mostly from Turkey. Uh, and they're not the best drones in the world, but it's a fundamentally new weapon system that can negate terrain and rain down damage on the Armenians wherever they happen to be. And if the Iranians turn on their Soviet-era missile defenses and they you know, shoot down four or five drones, 30 or 40 additional ones then hit that asset. So within a matter of a couple of weeks, uh, the Azerbaijani drone force was basically able to destroy every entrenched position that the Armenians had and even start targeting individual Armenian soldiers. And so the Azerbaijani army just literally walked in. There wasn't much fighting because the drones did all the work. Now, that's not all directly applicable to every conflict in the world. No, sure. But the idea that you can have a military that has like four dudes who have any idea what's going on actually conquer some territory with a few hundred drones. Yeah, we're in that world now. Uh, now, they still have to hold the territory and general Azerbaijani military incompetence. It's not a non-issue anymore. But there's a whole new layer to warfare now that is shockingly accessible to even the most Luddite of nations. Because this stuff is not expensive and it's not as sophisticated yeah. as using a Nintendo controller. So we will see this again and we will see it at scale. The Azerbaijani situation only used something like 40 or 50 drone launchers. Yeah. Uh, can you imagine the next time a real country is in a fight and they bring in a thousand? Uh, we also have um, our special forces in the United States have uh, backpacks full of drones that are about half the size of a set of sunglasses. Seriously? Yeah, all with like a little eraser-sized piece of explosive in them. I mean, they're primary for recon, but, you know, you send one of those after a dude, dude's dead. You send one down the, the turret of a tank, the tank's dead. Uh, and you can release like, you know, 300 of these in an instant. So the, the nature of warfare is definitely changing. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I am both very, very glad that I live in the Western Hemisphere and very, very glad that the U.S. Army has invested so much research and development into technologies like these. Uh, and the, the American Special Forces are kind of the forefront of this. So American interaction with the world in a military sense moving forward is going to be exclusively naval and special forces for at least the next 15 years. We're not going to be involved in a major conflict of the traditional sort. Uh, but Americans have always been very good at smashing things. It's putting things back together that we need some help with. Uh, and we're just not, we're out of that business for now. Right, right. Yeah, we're, we're, in, the, we're in the destruction uh, not necessarily the, the reconstruction business now. So, so Peter, before we finish, just in kind of broader terms, we've seen in recent years several shifts in kind of mood within within most of all within the Western world, and we've seen this rise of populism take place and become ever more evident. And it seems to it doesn't seem to go away with each successive election. It just that's the one thing that seems to be constant is this populism because of the, the fracture between left and right. Populism always fills that gap. And so whether you have Trump in power or you have Biden in power, the populism doesn't seem to, to go anywhere. Talk a little bit about how important that shift is, whether it is something that's going to define the next 10 years or whether it will peter itself out. Because obviously along with that comes this 
you know, this wealth divide and all the things that, that those of us who pay attention to these things can trace pretty simply back to things like monetary policy, but which are, are being talked about and, and um, discussed as, as nothing of the sort. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the mil- let me start with the, the last thing you said there with monetary policy. It's not nearly as simple as that. I'd actually argue that uh, the United States, in terms of monetary policy and its effect on things like um, inequality, is grossly overstated. Actually, you know what? Let me let me deal with that first, and then we can yeah, talk. Yeah, please, because I, I find that interesting. I'm going to share my screen here for a second. Do, 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 do. All right, you guys seeing the money supply graphic? Yeah. Okay, cool. So this is the uh, M2 in the United States, and that dogleg up at the right side is the coronavirus monetization program. Uh, And that's what people are talking about when they talk about mass monetization uh, and the United States printing currency and doing all kinds of things that supposedly are good for Bitcoin and bad for equality and blah, 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 blah. It's real. It's there. Here's the euro and the yen. Now, The United States dollar is the global currency. It is used in about 70% of international trade. It is the sole currency for 99% of commodities trade. It is the primary holder of value in the world. And yet, at multiple times in the last 20 years, the yen and the euro, despite being involved in less than one quarter of the sort of activity that the U.S. does combined, uh, have had greater monetary supplies because they regularly expand their money supply whenever they hit a political or economic hiccup. Mm -hmm. All right. Same data, that yellow, that's China. Wow. The dollar is not the problem here. (laughs) The dollar is the stable one. It's monetary policy everywhere else that is causing this problem because what happens in Europe or China or Japan when this goes on you put your money into U.S. dollar assets. Now, this is encouraging asset inflation. I don't mean to challenge that at all, but it's a step removed from what most people are talking about. It's not that they're wrong. It's just that that's like maybe 10% of what's going on. The other 90% is the instability in the financial systems of the rest of the world. Okay, with that in the back pocket. In the United States, we are going through our once every generation or two political reshufflings, which means that the normal political factions that kind of hold the line within the parties are, for the moment, offline. So in the case of the Republicans, the old guard, the national security, the fiscal and the military, I'm sorry, and the um, business conservatives, they're no longer Republicans. Trump kicked them out of the party. And what you're seeing now in the spat between Trump world and people like Elizabeth Cheney, for example, are representative of that. And to be perfectly blunt, Liz Cheney is absolutely correct. We now know that uh, more people have been injured in gender reveal parties in the last six months than we had cases of confirmed voter fraud in the 2020 federal elections. I mean, it's like four orders of magnitude off from what Trump world is claiming. Liz Cheney is correct, but she's still going to lose because the old guard that she's from has lost power. They've been ejected largely from Congress even. Uh, And the Republican Party has evolved in a different direction. The same thing has happened to the Democrats. They've lost the Hispanics. They've lost the unions. And they're now trying to see if they can have a New Deal-style regeneration to attract people from the middle. I think it's way too soon to declare success or failure for that right now. But that's why we're seeing these non-education education policies and non-infrastructure infrastructure policies. It's about capturing the public imagination about what might be 19... 
1940s New Deal style. Populism thrives in that sort of environment because it's noise without responsibility and social media is perfect for keeping it alive and fanning the flames. Now, I have no doubt that a decade from now, America's parties will be consolidated into a new series of factional alliances that makes more sense for the era and that populism will again fade into the background. But that's 10 years from now. And that same 10-year process is the global demographic collapse and deglobalization taking over everything. So if there was one moment in history that would be inconvenient for the Americans to be figuring out their own internal politics, it would be now. And so, of course, that's when we're doing it. Uh, and so the rest of the world just has to figure this out on their own because we right now can't act and don't care you did a very nice job of uh, quickly uh, summarizing sort of the direction the Democrats have gone in. And you've talked about how the Republicans are in disarray, if that wasn't obvious for everyone already. <laughs> what do you think their game plan is? Because I sure as hell can't even guess. At what, it seems to me like the Republicans are totally lost. Well, that's one of the re one, of, well, one of the problems of having populists in charge. They don't think long term. They're they're certain that somebody is acting against them. They're not quite sure. Maybe it's domestic. Maybe it's foreign. Maybe it's a Jew in space with a laser. It's it's very difficult for the populists to consolidate because they have a really hard time with basic math and facts. And that's one of the reasons why I've always considered people like Bernie Sanders to just be freaking hilarious because he's always on the edge spouting some nonsense. Well, we've now have Ted Cruz being the Bernie Sanders of the right. It's like, you know, he said, oh, I'm not going to take money from corporations anymore. That's because corporations won't give him money anymore. <laughs> uh, they're trying to establish a new political norm. I'm not, I'm fairly convinced that that is not going to work. Uh, but again, the next 10 years are a transitional period for the United States. We've been through this before. This is not the first time the American parties have spun apart and then rearranged themselves. This is actually our seventh time going through this. We'll get through it. And it's not just us. It's like politics evolve following major changes in geopolitical structure and demographics and technology. And in the last 30 years, we've had the end of the Cold War. We've had the rise of digitization, the rise of globalization, and now deglobalization. Of course, we're going to manage our politics different. The French are doing the same thing. Remember, it was only three years ago that their equivalents of both the Republicans and the Democrats collapsed, and they're still sifting through that. Israel hasn't, has, what the weather, we're 14,000th election in the last five years in Israel. The political center's completely collapsed. Uh, I, I don't think I need to tell you guys about what's been going down in the UK in the last five years. It's like this, I don't want to call it normal, but this is part of a generational shift, a technological shift in politics and dem democracies. We are all wrestling with this. It's just in the United States, it's just loud. And so it tends to drown out everything else. But don't think for a second that there's a democracy out there that has found a way to make this nice and smooth. There isn't. One thought that I, I, I've had, although now that I've gotten so much more up-to-date information from you, I'm, I'm, I'm not as empty-headed about it as I was when we started, shall we say. But I have wondered if the people that would like to cause us a little harm or cause us to get tied up uh, in our own affairs weren't going to take advantage of the 
you know, the, the almost open warfare in America between the woke and everyone who's not woke, even if they're liberal or if they're conservative, and the sort of, if we seem this at war at home, I would think we would look even more at war to the outside world. And I've been wondering if now would be a convenient time for somebody to stir up trouble. I mean, you've kind of answered that by explaining where somebody is already stirring up yeah. trouble. <laughs> uh, Russian strategic policy has always tried to keep the Americans at war with themselves. Uh, they were very active during the green movements. They helped found Greenpeace, um, civil rights movements. Uh, they always misunderstand and overplay, uh, but that doesn't mean they don't have successes. Um, so in the case, in the context of your specific question, uh, when the Black Lives Matters protests really got going last year, the Russians came out on social media in a very big way and attempted to foment as much potential violence among every faction as they could. Uh, the woke movement was just one of many. And I would argue that Black Lives Matters writ large, which is kind of broader movement, was one of three movements in the United States political spectrum that they were more successful at. Uh, Trump world was the second most, and Blue Lives Matter was the third most. And the Russians kept trying to spawn activities of those three groups at the same place. Now, they never really pulled it off, uh, but they certainly you know, poured gasoline on the fire whenever and wherever they could. Uh, but other groups, um, gay groups, Hispanic groups, uh, women's rights groups, they, they didn't get any traction with those groups for whatever reason. Uh, so yes, it is real, um, but it's not nearly as big as most people think. Uh, I don't mean to suggest that there's any part of 2020 that I would like to relive, because there's not. But uh, the Black Lives Matters movements um, were predominantly nonviolent. Uh, if you factor out Portland, because Portland's insane, and that first week in Minneapolis where it started, there were never more than 50,000 people on the streets nationwide at the same time. Uh, that doesn't mean it's not significant and that the United States should not you know, grapple with these issues. And by that, I mean everything from the Proud Boys to Antifa. But, you know, context, I think, is still kind of useful. Um, the group right now that is proving most enthusiastic in falling prey to these sort of foreign manipulation programs is absolutely MAGA world. And a very specific sliver of it. So MAGA world split three weeks ago when Donald Trump came out and said, you know, you should get the vaccine. It's the best vaccine. It's the Trump vaccine. I made this vaccine. This vaccine would not have happened without me. MAGA world split in two. To those who are like, okay, well, if Trump says it's okay, I'll get the shot. And the other factions like, clearly they got to Trump and that's not really him. And that's an animatronic lizard man. It's that second group that, you know, the Russian government if what I'm hearing out of Moscow is right, they've started sharing information on these groups with organized crime to target them with scams because they'll fall for anything. Uh, and we don't know how many million people that is. Uh, it's hopefully the smaller sliver of MAGA world, but it's enough to matter. Uh, the QAnoners, of course, they're, oh man, when the QAnoners heard that Bill Gates was getting divorced, they just went ape shit. It's like, like they're, they're like looking through all their conspiracy theories to find out which ones that fit in. Stiff, fits in. <laughs> uh, but this is a real block and this is a real problem and there's no clean way to take it because, you know, anyone who comes out with them with logics or facts and figures or history or context or science or religion or math, 
anything uh, is going to make any progress because they'll just see it as uh, something that reinforces. I'm just kind of going on a rant here, aren't I? That's okay. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I don't even know how big is QAnon. People act like it's this big movement. I don't have a clue if it's 10,000, 100,000, 85 people. I don't know. Our best understanding is when Twitter went in and banned 70,000 QAnon accounts, which they thought was all of them, they, they released that over 65,000 of them were just repeat accounts. So if it's only 5,000 accounts that are actually posting fresh stuff, QAnon can't be that big. Now it's loud and it's wildly entertaining. Um, but it does worry me that they, they got into the White House. Uh, I think a lot of this is going to die down after Sidney Powell's in prison. Uh, I mean, she's being sued for a couple billion dollars uh, for things that she obviously said that were obviously wrong and were obviously liable. Uh, so I have no doubt how that case is going to go down. But when she publicly falls and probably takes a few of the high-level MAGA people with her, uh, I think the conversation is going to change. And that should happen this year. Fantastic. Well, Peter, look, we've, uh, we've been all around the world. We've had you dressed up as a Politburo member and, and, and the Tsar of Russia. And it's been, it's been an absolute joy from start to finish. So, but before we close, just, um, just let the people listening know where they can uh, read more of your work and follow you because I, I had to say the stuff you do is absolutely fantastic. And I, and I, I can't recommend your books highly enough. They're, they're, they're just wonderful reads and everything that people have heard you say and the way you've delivered it in this last hour, it just, it, it, your books just come screaming at me. They're a wonderful read. So just let people know how they can find out more. Sure. Well, I'm working on book four right now, so I, I'm not a, as present on social media as I normally am. Uh, but you can follow me on Twitter. It's at peterzion.com. Last name is spelled Z-E-I-H-A-N. And then uh, irregularly, when global events present themselves, and I have the time, uh, there's a newsletter that comes out, and that's always free. You can sign up for it at uh, zion.com slash newsletter. Fantastic. And, and uh, can you give us a, a, any teasers on the new book? Or is it is it hush-hush at the moment? Tentative title is Life After the End of the World. Ah, Excellent. Perfect. Excellent. So perfect. disunited nations was well, what happens to all the major to, countries in the decades you, to come. Yeah. This is about you, the economic sector. You just need to change it to Life After the End Game. Yeah, there you go. Well, you, you also, it sounds to me, you also need to get it written pretty fast. <laughs> uh, we're about halfway done right now. Fantastic. Well, look, Peter, again, thank you so much for sharing this time with us. I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you. And hopefully we can, uh, we can have a bite to eat at some point soon. Uh, we're, we should be done with the mass vaccination effort in the United States around June 1. So we're almost All right. there. Summer in Colorado. I'm in. Thanks a lot, Peter. I really enjoyed uh, meeting you and listening to you. That was fabulous. Likewise. You guys take care. All right. Cheers, Peter. Bye-bye. Well, there you go. Around the world, around the that world was, with Peter's That own. was not only educational; it was it was it was fun. Yeah, Peter, Peter's fabulous. I mean, he and I have, have have spoken at the same event on numerous occasions, and uh, I always make sure I'm front and center in the audience whenever he talks because he's yeah. he's just he's not only interesting, but as you say, he's entertaining. He's thought provoking. It's it's and there's just so much to think about. Bill. Well, yeah, he's got his arms around a whole lot of complex variables. It's, that's one of those kind of things to have your database that full. And be able to talk so um, succinctly and logically and eloquently on something. You have to have been doing this for a long time. You you can't get up to speed on all that stuff uh, fast. Yeah. And I have always sort of made it a point not to have a big opinion about Asia. Because I always thought, well, I know the Chinese are lying. I can't get good data. So I'm, I'm aware of some things. But I've kind of not really dove in uh, because I, I just didn't think I would get anywhere. And then I... 
I'd trick myself into thinking I knew something when I knew I didn't. Um, so I'm, I may be more behind the curve on some of that than the average person. I don't know, but um, I, I found his level of understanding and putting the pieces together um, uh, really remarkable. And I, quite frankly, I'm I can't wait to listen to this again. Yeah. Banged on about it already several times. But Peter's book, Disunited Nations, is great because he takes he basically takes you around the world and goes through just about every important country in the world, explains their geopolitical situation, the reality versus the media spin, talks about their strengths, talks about their weaknesses, you know, and kind of grades them all. And it and it's a really interesting look at the reality of geopolitics uh, away from, as we said earlier on, that that narrative that is carefully constructed and, and just endlessly repeated, which is often nowhere near the truth. You know, China being probably the most obvious example of that. But but again, I can't recognize, uh, recommend Peter's books highly enough. They're just a, a fabulous read. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to get that one for sure. Well, that, mate, that's it. That's it for another another episode. I guess all that remains is to is to thank you guys out there for listening to us. Hopefully, you've enjoyed that as much as Bill and I have. Do follow Peter on Twitter. You'll, you'll enjoy doing that, even when he's not uh, busy. He's uh, he's always entertaining. You can follow me on Twitter if you're not doing so already. You'll find me at ttmygh, and I'm still at Fleckcap. Still at Fleckcap, and with that boot on your leg, it's more still than usual, mate. It's always a pleasure. We'll see you next time. Alrighty. Nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.